last left off in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through the end of chapter 9 for this evening. Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. And these are the words of God. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. That indeed, as you've spoken many times in many ways in these last days, you have spoken to us definitively through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is your word that bears witness unto him to make us wise for salvation. And so we pray just that, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the great uh, Woody Allen, Woody Allen once uh, captured well the fear of death that I think so many of us feel but perhaps try to suppress when in his own witty, wooden Allen-like way, once said, I don't mind dying so much as long as I don't have to be there when it happens to me. And I think that sums it up well, the kind of control and power that man longs to have over death even to do so by pretending, maybe even deceiving himself, that death would not swallow him up. You could compare those words of Woody Allen, for instance, to one Martin Luther, who said this, The man who fears death is not sufficiently Christian. Now those are strong words, aren't they? The one who fears death, Luther says, needs to mature out of that fear. Grow out of that fear. Maybe using the language of 1 John to know more and more of the perfect love that cast out all fear, even the fear of death itself. And I speak of death because tonight in our text we examine trumpet number six. 
And just as a refresher from where we've been thus far, we've seen all kinds of plagues, sundry plagues to use Mark's term, right? We've seen plagues of, of hail, of locust, of fire, of even torment, but it is in this sixth trumpet in particular that there's this increased intensity to it. And this trumpet specifically ushers in a plague of nothing less than death. And so we'll walk through this text in two simple parts, looking firstly at those who are slain in verses 13 through 19, and then those spared in verses 20 and the end of the chapter. But the main point that would really have to wait to the end to draw out is simply that we become like what we worship. Whatever it is that you worship, that is what you will come to resemble, for better or for worse. So firstly, a look at those killed in verses 13 through 19. Uh, for me, it was, it was many moons ago in, in military school where I was introduced to what is surely the most obnoxious alarm clock ever devised by man, and that was a trumpet that would go off early in the morning playing reveille to wake up cadets to wake up troops to be ready for battle. And that is a, a very much an ancient military custom that still endures to this day. And it's the same with this sixth trumpet. This trumpet blown in verse 13 is a militant trumpet. If you look at verse 16, you can see specifically that it is mounted troops, warriors who are roused for rage by this trumpet. You see further though that it's not simply a trumpet. Verse 13 continues and it says that this trumpet's blow comes from a voice. In verse 13, which should be noted, that that voice comes from the four horns of the altar. And that is important because you might remember from chapter 6 that it was specifically the prayers of the saints, the prayers of Christians that were ascending to the altar, praying for God's vindication. How long, O Lord, how long until you answer our prayer? And you see in that the power of persistent prayer because now it is as if God has seen, God has heard, and God has answered their prayer. And here's the simple command given in verse 14. It is simply to release, release. I remember as a boy, I would go over to my friend's house, terrified every time because he had this giant mastiff, this giant dog. And I remember every time I'm over there, I would be thinking in my mind, hey, whatever you do, Dave, don't release that dog. Keep him on a leash. Keep him outside. Probably didn't help that he kept embellishing stories that he couldn't keep friends because his dog kept eating up all of his friends. But that's another story. And far more than just canines being released, this command to release is given. And notice verse 14, what, or maybe better said who, is released off of this divine leash but these four angels who were restrained. You might remember chapter 7, those four angels holding back four winds, but now they are released. And it's interesting, I think that if I were an angel, I would almost surely sue the world for defamation of my character. And that you might notice that angels are so often depicted in popular culture, in art, in literature, as very unassuming, docile creatures, even as little children, little chubby children with rosy reeks and cheeks and white wings, and they're playing a harp. But remember, the angels are God's majestic servants, flames of fire, 
And they often serve as God's mighty created warriors. And while not to be worshipped, we see they are so majestic that man is at times tempted to bow down and to worship these creatures. And you see the magnitude of that at the end of verse 15. It's not only that the angels are released, but notice for what purpose they are released. You see their mission. They are released to kill a third of mankind. That just as man is created on the sixth day, man is now destroyed by the sixth trumpet. We could easily ask, well, how will these four angels carry out this mission? How do they go about it? So kids, simple math question. This will be easier than Mark's question, okay? So get ready. What is 10 times 10? 10 times 10. 100. Very good. Okay. One more. What is 100 doubled? What is 100 times 2? 200. Okay. Rest your brains. All right. Imagine facing an army of 200 people. Right, walk out on this field out here after the service. There's an army of 200 warriors. How scary, how intimidating that might be. Well, just imagine facing not 200, but 200 million people. 200 million warriors. Our minds can't even grasp that the chariots of God are twice 10,000. And it is so large that John says in verse 16 that before you would see this Calvary, you would hear it. You would hear the stomping of their feet as your spine turns into a jellyfish. Then your fears would be multiplied upon sight, seeing breastplates of of fire, heads of horses like that of lions, breathing out smoke, tails that whips as serpents, as verse 17 says. And certainly it's this imagery that is meant to evoke the weightiness, the terror of this plague. And note where it comes from, that it comes from beyond the river Euphrates in verse 14. Euphrates was very much known in the Bible. It begins, of course, in the book of, Ex- uh, or of uh, Eden in the book of Genesis. And it was so much a contested border for Israel, worrying about whether it's Assyria or Babylon coming from the river Euphrates. Even the great Roman Empire would fear that the Parthians would cross that river and come to destroy them. And so you can put all of that together. This command of the divine voice, a third of mankind destroyed, and see that God is bringing forth an awesome, awesome judgment, and God is triumphing through that judgment. And yet, even in that, you see God's common grace, that it is not a complete annihilation, that while God releases this judgment, at the same time, he just as much restrains judgment. The death is executed not upon everyone, but upon 33% of mankind. The great John Murray put it well when he once said that all of world history is just a dispensation of God's long suffering. In other words, that you and I wake up tomorrow morning and there's another day tomorrow testifies that our God is such a patient God. And that we are not immediately destroyed. And so if you're here tonight and not a Christian, know that God's patience is not meant to be presumed upon. That while God does restrain, know that he does restrain but for a time, but for a season. And that he has indeed appointed a day wherein he will judge all of mankind and it will not be so limited. And that he calls upon you now. 
to believe upon his risen Savior who underwent not simply death, but death of the agonizing cross and the wrath of God. And so on that note, now that we've seen those who are slain, let us look at those who are spared in verses 20 through 23. Verse 20 reads, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, and let's just pause there and ask, what might you anticipate or what might you, you, you hope for following those words? Maybe that, oh, those who were spared finally woke up to God's reality. They finally saw God's patience. That as they're crawling over a, a sea of corpses, they realize the weightiness of their sin. And they turn from their sin and they repent and they call out to God for forgiveness. And appeal to the grace of God and shower Him with unending gratitude and praise. And you see verse 20 so soberly, so solemnly finishes that sentence saying, the rest, the survivors, did not repent. They behold these awesome judgments of God, terrifying plagues, and not only does it not prick their soul, but they double down on their hardness of heart Storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. And I do believe in that we're reminded, maybe even ironically encouraged, of the true nature of repentance. What a gift repentance is. But notice no amount of punishment brings forth repentance. No amount of plagues changes a man's heart. At times we might imagine that those in hell would gladly repent they would gladly repent if just given enough time, just given one more second chance. And it is not so. As Revelation says earlier of Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refused. As C.S. Lewis famously said, that hell is locked from the inside. Again, that's why I hope we are reminded, ironically, of the great gift of repentance. What amazing grace of our great God that he does not hand us over to a hardness of heart. That he does not let our sin have dominion over us. That by his kindness he leads us in repentance. And so I do pray you're uniquely encouraged in your own work of repentance. That to know stings of conviction and the turning towards God and the turning away from your sin is grace upon grace. Perhaps we all do well tonight to ask, what is it that by the grace of God you could put off, you could put to death today, and put on to be more and more like Christ? Well, we find next that out of the overflow of this hard heart, they cling to two things specifically that are very important to observe. Firstly, notice in verse 20 this phrase, the work of their hands. One of the very important drivers of all false worship is to exalt the created over the creator. That the very nature of idolatry is to bring forth some kind of human product and then exalt that product and worship it as the substitute God. So very simple, you can get some wood, carve yourself an idol, and that is what you can worship that you made with your own hands. In our modern context, you can go and make money. You could go and sculpt a better body. You could go and fashion a better career. You could go and obtain control and power and fame and it be a true act of devotion. 
And even scarier, of course, is that you don't even need to obtain it, but just long for it and simply crave it, which is why the New Testament can so often refer to idolatry simply as covetousness. Once I get this, once I get that, I will be made whole. But make no mistake, it is a great exchange, a great distortion. It's an attempt to cash out on the glory of God and to cash in on man's glory. Such is the nature of idolatry. Secondly, while an idol itself might be lifeless, if you will, we notice that the driver, the animator behind this worship is alive and well. Verse 20, notice, it reads that this is the act of the worshiping of demons. Perhaps that sounds odd at first, but it should not be the least bit surprising to us as we know Satan's aim is to steal as much glory as he can from God and divert it onto himself. And you see this all throughout Scripture, but maybe an easy example since we're in the book of Exodus normally, we think of the golden calf. The Israelites go and they make with their hands that golden calf, and then they bow down and they worship it. And while it may not seem overtly demonic, Deuteronomy reads thus, that Israel sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Indeed, the rabbis commented on that event saying Satan himself was there prancing about as the cheerleader of that worship ceremony. And such a thing is not unique to the Old Testament. It continues in the New Testament. It continues to this day. That as worship always does, righteous worship leads to righteous living. False worship leads to false living. And you see exactly that unfolded in the next verse. In their deeds, in their actions and behaviors. Verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. And it's because of these things that God's judgment falls upon them. And students, you might do well, and all of us really would do well, to pay attention to that list of sins in verse 21. And just notice that sexual immorality is listed. And I say that simply as a cultural reminder, in that our present day does its most aggressive, most cunning work in our youth to try and persuade you that sexual immorality is is hardly even a thing. And really the only sin there is is to not express your um, your sexual liberties in whatever way that you seem fit. Students, you need to know that God's word anticipates this. God's word knows this. And as Ephesians so clearly says, do not be deceived. In other words, you should expect that you will be attempted in this act of deception. But do not be deceived. Because of these things, sexual morality being one of them, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the rebellious. Well, as we begin to close... Let us take up into our hearts but three things that you learn from this apocalyptic wisdom. Firstly, which is such a recurring theme throughout Revelation, is the truth that we become like what we worship. Whatever humans worship, whatever we set our hearts upon, 
That is what we become more and more like, for better or for worse. To say man is the image of God, it says as much. We are meant to image forth and be imagers. And I've hinted at that, but let me just tease it out a little further from verse 20. As you look, and notice how these idols specifically are described. Notice verse 20. Very specifically, it says that these idols cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot walk. Very important description, that they worship these dumb, lifeless idols. And thus, those who worship them become like them. In that, the false worshiper would be blinded, unable to see, unable to behold the glory of Christ, unable to see the king in his beauty. The false worshiper would be unable to hear, deaf when it comes to the hearing of God's word, deaf when it, becomes, when it comes to the hearing of the things that make one wise for salvation. And thirdly, the false worshiper, worshiping the false idol, becomes like it and that he or she cannot walk, paralyzed when it comes to walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord, walking uprightly and in righteousness. So again, I pray that you are vitalized by the reverse reality that as we do worship God rightly, in spirit and in truth, that we become more and more like him. How awesome that we can actually be renewed after the image of God our maker, that we really can be transformed from one degree of glory to another by worshiping the living Christ. Secondly, the hardness of the human heart. And you see it here that no amount of warning, no amount of plague, no amount of Punishment softens the heart to turn from such false worship animated by this demonic power. Kids, maybe to think of a question, if you were asked, what is the hardest material on earth? How would you answer that question? What is the hardest material on earth? And maybe you'd say, a special gym, a rock, a diamond, maybe some other fancy gym that I don't even know about as you think about it. But kids, you would be right to say as you think about it a little bit more. But the hardest material on earth is the human heart. The human heart, hardened against God, turning from God, deaf, dumb, mute, cannot see when it comes to God's grace. And again, how great is the reverse reality. That praise be to God who can melt the heart with his gospel of grace. That it can turn hardened sinners into the softest saints. We may take this as a great exhortation to not harden our hearts, to keep it soft with the means of grace, and to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. And lastly, the sovereignty of God. Perhaps as you read this section, you think, man, nothing seems uh, more riotous, more chaotic, more random than this anarchy of this plague, and yet... As we read further, we see that nothing was more prepared. That the unleashing of the sixth trumpet is right on schedule. As you look at verse 15, we're right on time according to the plan of the sovereign God. For verse 15 tells us that everything the angels unleashed, every ounce of punishment, every ounce of plague had been prepared, had been made ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. 
that what might look like chaos at first, randomness at first, is the unfolding of God's all-wise calendar to sum up all things in Jesus Christ, to make the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of Christ and of God. And Christian, what higher comfort is there than that? That we are kept by such a God who never sleeps, who never slumbers, that not even death itself could separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that this same God softens our hearts with his gospel of grace, that we might truly worship the King and so be like him, that he may be glorified forever and ever. And let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord God, indeed, that you would take the heart of stone within us, that you would give us a heart of flesh, that when we were once blind and deaf, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would keep us from false worship, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, that with eyes fixed upon Christ, that we truly might be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, as we continue in worship, let us stand as we sing, Jesus paid it all, hymn number 308.